Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. KYW Original Podcasts. Playground. Yep. Welcome to the Sion Pool. This is the mural at Sion Playground. So it's his portrait, it's kind of in front of American flag. And it says Frederick Sion on the bottom. And his number on his hat, 6398. I would love to um, solve a mystery that has haunted me for all those years, you know, because I live in that neighborhood, and um, there's someone out there who shot a police officer. That person may have, from then to now, may have killed other people. I got teary because it brought back memories of the, of the um, neighborhood I grew up in, and being the only unsolved police shooting I've done dozen of them in the last 30 some years on the street it's just that being the only unsolved just seeing that plaque um there it was like you know something looking up saying you know you gotta find them you gotta find the shooter
from KYW News Radio in Philadelphia. Philly. Philadelphia. Even though this was a long time ago, I remember just my small part of the role that I played. They know you're not knocking on the door in the middle of the night to give them good news. What you say about being shot at the wrong time, it's got a lot of truth to it. We didn't have the technology that we have. Something like this, to have it go unsolved for this amount of time. In the case of Sion, we never to date have an opportunity to tell that family, this is who is responsible for taking your loved one's life. These are true stories. And that hurts all of us. About unsolved crimes. It was devastating. It was, well, for three of us, and we just really never, never got over it. Well, you just don't understand. You, you, you just don't understand. Yeah. You have to have it happen to you. Yeah. I'm Kristen Johansson. I'm Tom Rickert. This is Gone Cold. On January 30th, 1970, Fred Sion was shot and killed on Oxford Street in North Philly. It was a long time ago. Nearly 50 years A lot of people don't remember, but Pete Kane does. I met Pete Kane when I was on the assignment desk at another station. We had a good time. I enjoyed that. Well, it was just so much fun. Yeah. Pete, could you you start off? Just introduce yourself. My name is Pete Kane. I am a photojournalist at uh, NBC10. I've been here since 1973. I mean, so much more, though, than a photojournalist. (laughs) Pete Gain is a legend, legend in Philadelphia, especially in journalism. Everybody knows Pete Gain. Everybody. I like news. I mean, I like, you know, I like news. It keeps me awake. And so I reached out to Pete and I said, you know, do you remember this? And he said, not only do I remember it, this was in my neighborhood. Growing up as a kid, the killing of Officer Sion was the biggest thing that I had experienced as a young kid. Because I lived four blocks from where he was shot that night. I'll never forget hearing the police sirens all day long, just police all in the neighborhood looking and you know for these shooters. And it's just like, you know what, if anything I ever had to do in life it was to be able to hopefully find the shooter for that officer because he had a family. What do you remember about the night that Fred Sion was killed. And were you, like, in bed when you heard that? I was asleep. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. What I remember that night was the uh, sirens, a lot of police activity in the neighborhood, just a lot of a lot of stops of, you know, young black males, you know, and because they wanted to find out who these shooters were. It was intense. You know, being a young black male... Police officers shot. You know that the and they don't have a shooter. The tension is going to be in the neighborhood, so they want to find out who did it. At that time, because I was so young, I probably didn't really understand the full impact of it. My older cousins, to them, it was a thing of not wandering out, afraid that you know they could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. If they don't have the shooter, then they pick them up. Say, look, you know something. I mean, I, the fear was being out there and being questioned about the shooting of a police officer. And it's, it's rightfully so, because, you know, this guy has a family. 
You know, I mean, like I said, I've lost friends, officers on the street in my 35 years. To me, it was personal, and I'm sure with so many police officers who may have went to, who was in the academy with Sion, who were partners with him, this thing, we wouldn't find who did this. And that would be the same thing if, you know, it was a cousin or a friend, and that's what it's like. Tensions were high in the community, and a lot of people probably just didn't wander out in the ballot. People thought that if I don't have an alibi, they can put anything on me. So it's probably fear that just not being out there to be able to be stopped. I'm sure people were talking about this. People were living in the neighborhood. Did, did you hear any ideas? Did people have theories? Back then, people had ideas of who may have shot um, Sion. And there's always talk about, you know, what goes on. But I think a lot of that, you know, that was someone they looked at but found that they were already incarcerated when it happened, you know. And someone probably knew something. That community, I mean, that area is tight. People just didn't wander in there. They belong there. So whatever may have happened to Officer Sion, they need to just go back, pull out some of those names, and, you know, something may click. Someone may decide to, hey, look, you know what? This has been haunting me all these years. They need to just dig up their old files. So the anniversary of Fred's death was coming up last year. Somebody who works at the, at, for the FOP Now and PR just mentioned Fred Sion's murder to me once and said, if you ever want to do a story with Nick, Nick Sion was also a police officer. I was going to do one of these one-minute stories that we do for radio, but then I got on the phone with Nick. We talked for a good 20 minutes, just and he just went on about his brother. So that's when I told you about it. This is incredible. Yeah, that's that's a picture there. That's your mom. Oh. Yeah. So Nick invited me over to his house. That's when we come out of St. Joe's Hospital. And ironically, this gentleman here. So is this a, is you? That's me, yeah. Oh well, you're talking. I was 24 years old then. And he and his wife were there. She made me a cup of coffee, which was super sweet. Well, we have a playground named after Fred up there, Aramingo and Lehigh, where okay. we're at, in the area where we grew up at. And we just sat down and started speaking about what was he like, Fred, and who Fred was. He was quiet. <laughs> wasn't a loud mouth. wasn't a tough guy. Real, very quiet, subtle guy. He was like bashful. Girls and things like that. I wasn't. I asked him a little bit about what their upbringing was like. Yeah, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. And my dad worked two jobs, so he was never home. Okay. So we, I, we never saw my father until like at nighttime, uh, nine, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. They always went over to their grandmother's yeah, house at night to sleep over after their grandfather had died. Because if anything happened, she couldn't use the phone. She, she didn't know how to read or write or anything. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we, yeah. we stayed there. You know, he told me just little stories about playing football with each other. And my father was actually the coach. So he used to organize teams. And we would play on on his teams, so, you know, growing up, you know. And how many? How far apart are you guys? How many years? Yeah, I think fourteen months, fifteen months old. And how he followed everything Fred did. We went to Frankfurt High School. He graduated sixty two. I got in sixty four. Bounced around with a couple of jobs, and he got drafted. And he he went to Vietnam, and then I joined the army when I got out of high school. And when he come home, then I went. And when he come home, he joined the police department. And then when I come home, I. Around a couple of, then I joined the police department. Nearly everything that they actually did in life professionally or, you know, Fred was first and then Nick followed. 
And one of those things is Vietnam. He drove a, one of them, uh, tankers, 5,000-gallon tankers. They would deliver fuel. Did he ever talk about Vietnam? To be honest, we didn't know. Not Did much. you ever talk about Vietnam to him? No. 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 We know it. Uh... My uncle, Tony, who was in the Army, gave us these video recorders, or a tape recorder, because we didn't like to write. He said, so you can send each other a message on a tape. So I still have that one tape he sent me. I, I don't play it much anymore. I can't play it. Uh, but at the time, he was 19, and he was talking about... Uh, uh, he said that he was thinking about going in the Army. Uh, he, he was telling me that he was embarrassed that he was just a mechanic. He was phenomenal with cars, and that was his love, working on cars. Everybody in the neighborhood would come to him, you know, to, to work on their cars. You know. I can remember... I needed brakes, and I didn't realize it. So he come home from work, just finished midnight to eight. He uh, put the brakes on for me, and I could go out, you know, and, and have a good time. So, in, in, the, in, the, in the tape, I, I felt bad when he said that. He, you know, was, was embarrassed not to, because we didn't go to college. And then he got drafted, so he went, in, you know. And then when he came home, he, I guess he had to, being in that MP unit, I think really helped him to make up his mind what he wanted to do and, and uh, geared him towards the police department. You know, that's that's all he wanted to do. You know. Like he found his calling. Yeah, yeah. The boy next door, Billy grew up, you know, we grew up in a row house neighborhood. And Billy said, I'm going to join the Navy. He said, I'm not going to Vietnam and get killed. You know, because everybody's getting drafted. You, you, you had to go in the Army. Get, you were going to get drafted. You know. and, and, and Billy got killed in Vietnam. He was, on a, he was on an aircraft carrier, and there was explosions, and, and uh, 138 sailors were killed. Yeah, if your time comes, it comes. You know, when Fred got back... He came back in 67. No, I went back. I went in 68, so it's almost a year. Okay, he yeah. took the police academy test. He gets assigned to the 23rd district. To the 23rd, and then how long? He's on the force for about a year, right? Not quite a year. The year wasn't up when he was considered dead. He was shot and killed in January. I joined in November 7th to the police department. Was it something immediate for you that you wanted to become a cop right after him? Because it sounds like you kind of always followed I his... followed him, but I don't know what made me do it. I got, you know, I took the test and, and I, I got, I got in. You know. And I didn't ever got to talk to him that night, which would really bother me. When was the last time you talked to him? I don't remember. It was had to be because he was working midnight to eight. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't see him that night. And I, yeah, uh, often try to remember what we talked about last night. So I can't remember. Yeah, it's a, a long time. Gone cold. We'll be right back. When there's no closure to the mystery and the sorrow, Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know. 
What happened? And who did this? We searched the wooded area. We searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? Search for Gone Cold KYW in the Radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Gone Cold. No one in this story that we talked to knows more about Fred than his brother. What does his brother remember about the, the night he was shot and killed? His brother said he was in bed, and he remembers a knock at the door and then just commotion downstairs. Next time, my mother's running up the steps, very upset, and calling to my father. And I go, what's going on? So I get up, and I just looked at, at the top of my steps, would lead right to, you could see the, the vestibule door. And I saw a, 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 a police officer, I saw a priest, and I saw Joe. Devaney, the sergeant, and I saw a, a, a detective. Yeah. And they're standing at the door. I, I can't figure what's going on. He said that they all got dressed, got into the police car. My father comes down, we're dressed, and they said, there's been a little accident. We're going to take you to the hospital. But we, we get in the car. Ed Vaughn was a detective. And he said he specifically remembers the police turning off. He turns his radio off. And everything was silent. I stopped. I stopped. figure what's going on. And we go to the hospital and we put us in a room. We were sitting here. All the officers told the family was that Fred was rushed to the hospital and they needed to go to the hospital. There was no information about what happened. And uh, then all of a sudden... The commissioner comes in. He tells us. And we come home. That was it. He didn't tell us what happened. You know, nothing. And then we started seeing things in the in the, in the paper and, and and reading what the, you know what actually happened. And. Uh, what were the exact words? Do you know what they said to you? No, I, I, I couldn't couldn't tell you what he. But I, but I remember his. I'll never forget his, his black leather coat was was laying there with his holster with mud on it. You know, so I, I saw that and I couldn't figure out what it. You know, you know, I thought it was going to be an auto accident. That's what I'm thinking happened. You know, an accident. He's probably just got hurt. You know. So do you know who found him then? A, a woman gets on the radio, on the phone, calls, says she heard gunshots. And I think there was a wagon was the first uh, vehicle on the scene. And they took him to St. Joe's. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. The car door was open and he was found near the gutter. So this, this is my thinking cold night that night this guy's walking down the street he stops the car in the middle of the street opens the car door walks towards the sidewalk and all he wants to do is find out his name what are you doing around here that's all he wanted to ask him you know he just pulled out his gun and shot killed him that was it and Freddie never said anything on the radio you're supposed to tell the radio so they know what you're doing he he didn't do that and she she could tell him "I'm, I'm stopping the guy 
you know, and you give a description of the guy. So at least they have something. But Do you feel like it's the violence that of how he died that makes it so difficult? Yeah, I, the, the fact that I know he never had a chance. The guy shot him three times. He never drew his weapon or nothing. So he didn't, didn't know what was coming. Nick still goes into the police academy to become a police officer. So I believe that for Nick, there was a little bit of like an investigation in his own head, you know, probably putting his brother in, you know, in mind about, you know, everything he's trained to do, making sure that you make a radio call when you make a stop and you don't have a partner with you. I never told my parents any of this stuff. I never, never told them things that I learned or I thought happen. I just, you know, let it, let it be the way it is. It, to the day they died, it was tough. They used to go up to the cemetery every week. And at Christmas time, they used to put a Christmas tree out there. They used to dig a hole and put a, a, a car battery in the ground. And my father, every night, would go light the tree. Every morning, go back and turn the tree lights off. They always went up. And they never, never, ever got over this. Never. I always tell people, for parents to bury their, their children is the most devastating thing. It's the most devastating thing. What was that like to be in your patrol car the first time after Freddie was killed? Well, I, I think the first thing that bothered me was I can remember coming home with my badge from the, from the academy. And I was showing my mom and dad, and my mother starts crying. And I realized I, you know, she was thinking about Freddie. I, I felt bad that. Uh, Brought my badge out to show her, you know, because he was excited when he got when he got his badge. You know, I, I, I was sent to the Twenty Fourth District, which was nothing like where he was, and I never really worried about anything. Yeah, but I, you know, I often think of him. As years go on, people forget. You know, there's. You take nine out of ten cops out here, they wouldn't know Fritzio's name from anybody. Even though it's the most, the only unsolved murder in police history. Even when I talk to cops, a lot of times like, we get detail guys come over, escort us on a funeral. I don't, a lot of times they say I'm a cop, I don't say anything. Some people remember me. I guess I got a face you can't forget. And they'll say, Of course you do. You want to police department? Nick had a whole kind of spread set out for you when you showed up. Yes. He had albums and plaques. Friday, January 30th, 1970. Yeah. Is every newspaper clipping. Oh, wow. Is a book a woman wrote about yeah, Fred Sion. Yeah. She yeah. self-published yeah. the book. They, they, they said that there was no ending. The, pub, the one publisher she went to, well, there isn't any ending. <laughs> Pictures, <laughs> the crime scene, but probably the most special thing. And then you have these letters. Was the letter. Yeah, here's this letter that this... Uh, Detective, well, a former detective, wrote, And that's where he was working at the time. See, there's his name, uh, Gerald Ross Jr. He gets this letter about 25 years after his brother's death. And it's from 
a man who says that he was a detective in the case, worked the case, and then he thinks about it every day. Well, it was very touching for me because, like I said, you know, 1994, you know, time's passing on, and uh, here's a, a former detective who uh, wrote this nice letter about how the guys who he worked with who were here worked on the case, and, and, and they still talk about the case. Do you know if he passed? I have no idea. And it just meant so much to Nick that somebody who had left the department at that point had written this letter to him and to his family. It really really does stay with them. It it really does. Yeah, a lot of the old timers. I don't know about the door guys. uh, No, I think it does for all of them. You really took the time to write this. I was really touched by this. uh, And that's just one of the things in this treasure trove of Fred-related memorabilia. But that's the one thing that he showed me. I mean, that was, I looked through the albums myself. I, you know, I mean, he obviously said, oh, this is a picture of him, you know, doing this. And this is a picture of him doing that. And this is an article. But that was the one thing that he was really excited to show me. Nick says that he doesn't think a lot of the cops that are working right now in the Philadelphia Police Department know all that much about his brother. You thought if there was one person who would know if cops still remembered Fred Sion. The police commissioner, Richard Ross. Okay. Commissioner, I just need you to say your name and spell it. Richard Ross, R-O-S-S. And how long have you been the police commissioner? A little over three years. So, how long have you been in the force? 30 years uh, in about two weeks. Because Nick Sion had such a remarkable story about his brother. Um, I was late to my meeting with him. Sorry. But I wanted to go in and speak with him because we know that the police officers that are in the academy now and that are going through it have heard about Fred Sion. But it's it's something that they learn. It's not something they think about or remember for very long. It is something that Commissioner Richard Ross knew about. So I go in to speak with the commissioner in his office. So have you heard of Fred Sion? Uh, I have heard of Fred Sion without question. More specifically, having to do with my tenure in the homicide unit, how that created and caused a great deal of anguish for that unit. And having one from decades ago that still remains unsolved is really uh, troublesome to many of those uh, homicide detectives downstairs. I just thought maybe he could give some insight on what they talk about if they talk about Fred Sion, um, what he remembers about it, and then a little bit of insight as a police commissioner going through a police officer being killed in the line of duty. Telling a family, is there kind of a code that you guys follow? Because Nick retells the story about how it was like 2 in the morning or something, and they get taken to the hospital well and they turned off the radio which was like the that's first thing one of the first things we do the radio goes off because you don't want a family to hear all that chatter look they already know that there's something really wrong uh, but that officer who's transporting that's got to be one of the toughest things for them to do too, to to drive in virtual silence as they're screaming to the hospital and in some cases trying to help to provide that last opportunity to see their loved one uh, take their last few breaths. He has been there when these families have been told. It's one of those things where if you've never been through it, you can't possibly begin to understand 
how consuming it is. It is one of the most difficult things you could ever imagine, and, and I've had occasion to do that more than once. Um, only once with a police officer where we actually had to go to the widow's home in the middle of the night. They know you're not knocking on the door in the middle of the night to give them good news. Anyone who's never made a death notification, I say you're blessed. And I hope that you never have to do it. And while there are strong suggestions surrounding how you do it, in your heart, you don't feel like you're ever going to get it right. Because you're still the person that told them about the worst day of their life. Absolutely. When you went to go see Richard Ross, what did you think he was going to be able to give you? I thought he was going to give me the blanket. This is what it means to be a police officer. This is what it means to be in the line of duty. You know, some insight and background about the department and about what it means to lead a police force, especially after a death like that. But I got something better. I remember I was at a wedding and I knew that you were going out to get some interviews. And I get a missed call and then another one. And so <laughs> we're just in the hotel lobby. And I go outside, I call you. And you're like, you'll never believe what just happened. I get a little excited about this stuff. Yeah, so I had this conversation with Nick about this letter that he received. Yeah, here's this letter that this... Uh... Detective, well, former detective, right? And then I'm in this interview with Commissioner Ross, and then he says something along the lines of, you know... For me, the connection even runs deeper than my tenure in homicide and my tenure on this job, in that my uncle uh, was a homicide detective in the late 60s and early 70s, and he worked on the Sion case. Hold on. And I pull up the letter just to check, and it's... Gerald Ross. See, there's his name, uh, Gerald Ross Jr. Jerry Ross. Missioner Ross's uncle. Oh my God, it is your uncle. Yes. I have to call Nick and tell him. He wrote this letter. Yeah, I'll send it to you. So, no, no, no. He no, wrote, no, no. He so, let me. For Exxon. Oh, wait. I'm so, sorry, no, no, I'm sorry, no. You're going to get even more excited. So, I was just out of my mind. I think you can hear that on tape. I go, oh my God, really? Oh my God, really? Would I just texted him today? I said, if memory serves me, I believe you worked on the only unsolved police murder, CM. Rich, yes, it grieves me to this day. I spent more time with a few other detectives on Sion's murder than any case. Many years ago, I wrote a letter to his brother and family saying how badly I felt. It's stuck in my craw forever, and I fear the doer may have taken it to his own grave. That's crazy. That's him right there. You want to see a picture of him? Yeah. Just for, uh, let me show you. It never dawned on me when I read the letter. It was from... Mr. Ross, it was from the company he was working for at the time. So it doesn't say, you know, it's a company in New York. So it's not something that I'm thinking is at all connected to the Commissioner Ross I know. Now you really got some things to run with on this one. I, know, I really do. And so I pull up my phone, Commissioner Ross just double-checked with his uncle and gave me his phone number. I can't remember if I called you before or after I called Mr. Ross, but he answered on the first ring. And um, I speak with him for a little bit. He still recalls everything like as if it happened yesterday. He knows he wrote the letter. He knows exactly what the letter said. He he was hoping that the Sion's got the letter, but he didn't really know if the Sion's got the letter. And I said, you know, I'm telling him 
oh, this is the most, you know, they did get the letter. It, it meant so much to them. And so he was so interesting on the phone that I decided to take a trip. Welcome to all those traveling on Amtrak Keystone Service Train 600. Alex Silverman, our boss, booked me a ticket. And I went to 30th Street Station, got on a train, and went to Connecticut. No closure to the mystery and the sorrow. Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know what happened and who did this. We searched the wooded area, we searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? Search for Gone Cold KYW in the radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. pulled up to Mr. Ross's house and he was, he was very kind. He had tea and coffee set out for us and like sandwiches and he was ready to go, ready to sit down and talk about this. Yeah. Uh, I'm Gerald Ross Jr. Born and raised in Philadelphia. I live in Connecticut. Uh, we relocated, my family relocated here in 1980. In 1961, after being discharged from the Air Force, uh, I entered the Philadelphia Police Department. At some point, I joined homicide, probably around 1968-69. I worked on Officer Frederick Sion's homicide, and it still lives with me. It's a part of me. It's kind of stuck with me all these years, and so I'd like to see that, see something happen for resolution and for closure for the Sion family. He said that he has been thinking about this case almost every day since he moved jobs first and then eventually retired. Always bothered me that we didn't solve this case, and I just felt bad. And one day, I don't even know what prompted me, I just said, you know, I need to write a letter to Sion's family uh, and just apologize that we were not able to find out who did it. Can you talk about how you got involved in Fred's case? The night in question, I was either working the 4 to 12 shift or the 12 to 8 shift. It was clearly after midnight. Uh, 17th and Oxford yeah. is in close proximity to the police administration building. It's about a seven or eight minute ride. So you get the call. So we get the call, and uh, my recollection, and this is important to me because it's, it still bothers me to this day, my recollection is I responded with dozens of police officers and, and, and officials, and what I saw was the police car in the middle of the street with the door open. Uh, that's all. The thing that bothers me is somehow some way the story got out that there were three people involved I don't know how it got started about the three people uh, but I always felt that if there was more than one person it would increase the chances that the case would be solved simply because people talk 
The fact that we haven't had information like that, at least we believe there was one person, and we always thought it was one person, based on somebody said, well, I saw a person running. But I never heard anyone say, well, I saw three men running. Ross and the other cops, dozens of cops, are working this. I mean, even Pete describes they were everywhere, all around that neighborhood. You talk to everybody. For months. Everyone that you see, you ask, what did you see? Who, when, where, where were you? What did you see? How did you see it? And then you knock on every door. Neighbors, bars, restaurants, anything, stores that were in that area. I was just a soldier, one of many that was told, hey, canvas the area, talk to many people as you can, knock on doors, you know, do all the footwork. You canvass the area, you speak to people in the homes. The information that I had is that we were looking for a shooter, a single person that was seen leaving the vicinity of the police car. He got out of his car, this is hypothetical, confronted a person. The person may have been wanted for something. The person was definitely was carrying a weapon and fearful of going to jail. And he just said, I'm not going to, it's not going to happen. That's exactly what Nick thinks. Literally almost word yeah. for word what he said to me. So um, we took some people into who we thought might, we might want to question. And we took them to the police administration building and we questioned a lot of people. But we didn't find out anything that would be helpful to us. And so after that, the brass, the people that ran the detective division, put teams of detectives together and gave them specific duties because now we were in an unsolved homicide situation. One of the assignments that I got in 1970, speakeasies in Philadelphia in the black community were very popular. So we had a list of hundreds of these little apartments and houses, and they were all over Philadelphia. And we, we went to all these speakeasies. It took months. Places you would never want to even walk in. Mice and things running all over the place. We weren't going to... They would go from speakeasy <laughs> to speakeasy just to see if anybody had heard anything or talked about it. The word got around that we were not there to hurt the operators or to cause them harm or to stop their business or to arrest them. We were there seeking information. They just want to find out, did you hear anything? Just to find out if whatever new clue that they could, all I heard from this guy who heard from that guy. And it was funny because it got to a point where they expected us and they even welcomed us. They said, well, come on, sit down and have a drink. <laughs> yeah, sure. The most interesting character in this all was Mama Lou. In the course of going to these bars, there was one woman enjoyed drinks as she was described to me and somehow i established a, a bond with this woman and she says well she would call the police unit and say call detective ross i got some information for her and this went on and on and on and everything that she talked about was just was not it was it was not bona fide it was not credible it was not true what she did is we were feathering her nest so she could buy drinks she would say, well, meet me at the bar. I've got some information. And then you would buy her a drink. A, a drink? <laughs> yeah. Apparently a smart lady and decided that she would kind of work the cops on this. She played us for so long. Even after I left the police department, I had a police officer come to my house 10 or 15 years ago and said that some detective in Philadelphia wants you to call him. 
And when I called him and heard the name Sion, I said, oh, my God, something's going on. It wasn't a break in the case. It was Mama Lou, now an old, older person, still working the system. I said, she's taking you down. She's taking you down a primrose path. She never has told us anything about anything. I think she just used us to her own advantage. And I wasn't the only one, but she seemed to... I think I had more history with her than than anybody else. So detective work during that time is just not what it is today. There's no surveillance video. Obviously, this is 50 years ago. There's no DNA. Really, they don't have a lot to go on. They have talking to witnesses, and they have ballistics that's kind of developing also. I know he was shot with a 22. Okay. From a 22 caliber weapon. Okay. If it was a revolver, the bullet would be either passed through him or recovered from his body. But no shell on the ground because I doubt if an automatic was used. Most of the bad guys had revolvers, six shot revolvers, which would not leave any shell on the ground for you to recover. At the time, we were in the old fingerprint system that was a big, huge Roldex. It was all done by hand. They were able to figure out that this fingerprint belonged to this person. You actually had to get a fingerprint card, and then you had to go to the crime lab people, and they would match it against other fingerprints. You'd actually have by hand, you'd have to count the, the worlds and the different things that make up a fingerprint. It was a big room with a big... Roldex that turned around and turned around with all these cards on them. Tons and tons of these large index cards with oh fingerprint gosh. information. And How you, would you ever... That's literally finding a needle in a haystack. It, it sure is. It, exactly. If you had a suspect, it would be easier. You could find the name and then go and find the fingerprint card and pull that card and then match it. But you'd have to have a, a name. Right. Right. You have to have somewhere to start. You have to have somewhere to start, right. There is a picture. I can't tell if they're wearing, like, latex gloves or not, but detectives literally taking a shovel that you would use in a garden, your back garden, and shoveling and looking through this pile of kind of debris and dirt, likely for bullet fragments or really anything that could be of evidentiary value. Yeah, it's, it's just a couple of guys standing over a chalk outline with a broom and a shovel. And the chalk outlines a stick figure, by the way. It's a stick figure. It's and just that, to say, his head was this way, his feet were that way. It's not like an outline of Fred Sion. And that was the scene of the homicide investigation. That was where Fred was shot. That was police work. Those were the tools they had at the time. It's interesting that if this happened, you know, present day. You wonder how quickly this would have been solved versus back then when you had nothing. He shot in a time where there wasn't DNA, there wasn't... Cameras, nothing. I mean, if you commit the same kind of crime today, people think they get away scot-free. Well, you know, I, I assaulted this woman, and but but nobody's seen me. And you could be five blocks down away, and they know what kind of coat you got on, and now you got a good shot because because there's cameras all over the place. So none of that existed. And so what you say about being shot at the wrong time, it's got a lot of truth to it. Uh, I mean, there's no right time, but I understand what you mean when you say that. Uh, it, it was, we didn't have the technology that we have. What would you say to somebody that may have that 
one little piece of a puzzle that could just at least bring answers. See, you see, that's difficult to answer because people that don't believe in, in the rule of, of law and, and trying to do the right thing, it's difficult to get that person to try to say, well, do it because it's the right thing to do. The, the thing I fall back on is to come up with some way where you can restart this thing and let people know that, hey, look, there's a reward out here. We want information. We're seeking information on this. And if you know anything or you've heard anything, then we want you to, you know. You don't want the story to die with Fred Sion. You want to have it. Yeah, I mean, because 50 years have gone by. And you and I know that every day that goes by, the less likely because people are going to die off. Nobody's going to be around to remember anything, you know. Every time I pick up the paper and I read about a cold case that's been solved after 30 years or 25 years, I said, okay, but now we're reaching the limit. We're at the outer limit right now, 50 years. Uh, so. You hope. You hope. I hope. Um, I'm hopeful. So, for the past 50 years, this has basically been where the investigation has stood. No new leads to speak of, and every year the odds of finding something substantial have gotten slimmer. Until now, the Philadelphia Police Special Investigations Unit is doing a full review of the case. They were even kind enough to invite us over when they brought the boxes out of storage. Gentlemen. Come on, Bob. I'll stand over here and cheering session. The two detectives now that are working on it have just received all of these boxes and so many boxes. I don't know how they got all that to the third floor. Must have been a workout of a day. Uh, Greg Santamala, homicide detective. And Bob Colmeyer, sergeant supervising the homicide unit. We got to see. Go ahead and open some boxes. I don't quite remember. I think it was 12 or 15. 12? Uh, 11 or 12, right? Different boxes of evidence. When you say box one, is it like chronologically? There's so far box one and two are in order. And that contains everything from the past 50 years. It's files, it's interviews. Files, it's interviews. It's a lot of interviews. I see this one is all uh, alphabetical. While they're doing this full review, they're going to be looking for a couple things. Any ballistic information, witness statements, descriptions. And there's another thing that came up during this episode. How many suspects do they have? Like the memorial pages, it says three people. But then... I know that Jerry said, I don't know what anybody came up with three people. We always had one person. And then, you know, Pete, yesterday when we talked to him, I said, what did you hear? And he said, well, three people doesn't make sense to me because somebody would have talked, but one person does make sense to me. It would surprise me because when you read the initial, we've only gotten through one or two boxes. And when you read the initial, they talk of multiple persons. They talk about him coming out of his police car and they talk about multiple people being out there. So I can easily see where they get the three. Uh, I I don't know where they're getting the one because we haven't gotten into this yet. So there's a lot of still discrepancies in how many people are looking for. I mean, now not only do they not know the motive, they most definitely don't know how many people were involved in this. Jerry Ross brings up a good point. He says somebody would have talked at this point if there were three guys. So is it one guy? Or maybe did other people start running because they heard gunshots that they just decided to run, and that's maybe somebody that, you know, this woman saw was somebody running away from the gunshots. They still have to sort all of that out and read all these interviews from all those neighbors. 
Fred Sion was shot on Oxford Street in North Philadelphia between 17th and 18th. It's right next to Temple University. That's where I went to school. I've walked all around that neighborhood. One thing I never noticed until the two of us went there, though. There it is. Yeah. There's a plaque on the sidewalk. Right at the spot where Fred was shot and killed. In memory of police officer Frederick Sion, killed on the line of duty, protecting the citizens of Philadelphia on January 30th, 1970. Dedicated by his family and friends. It's definitely one of the older ones, too. I mean, because it's... It's faded. It's hard to see. Badge number 6398. Hey, Pete. I'm wondering what, what you see as the, the biggest differences between the neighborhood as, as it was when, when you were a teenager and in the neighborhood now. The neighborhood, the environment has changed. The people that live there now never would have thought of living there. 30, 40 years ago. There's very few uh, families that have lived that lived there when I was living there. And it's a changing neighborhood. But it's just I just hope that um, with Sion's plaque being there, that scene is not forgotten because of um, the service to the country, Vietnam War, the service to the city of Philadelphia. That plaque should still be a memory of someone that did a lot for Philadelphia made his life down for Philadelphia. So the neighborhood's changed, which is hopefully that is still a, um, a lasting memory of a deserving person. This is a part of the letter that Gerald Ross wrote to Nick Sion. Dear Nicholas, I am a retired Philadelphia homicide detective and have resided in Connecticut for the past 15 years. I wanted to write you and your family for quite some time and pondered whether it would only serve to bring back memories you and your family have lived with for so many years. I am constantly reminded of the tragedy of your brother, Officer Frederick Sion. I have never forgotten that his death is the only unsolved homicide of a police officer in department history. You never know if, if you saw that one line from my uncle, they'll know if the doer took it to his grave. It's a tragic thing to, to have that uh, just linger. I truly believe that no police officer, detective, or ranking officer spent more time on the investigation than myself. Beginning with the very first trip to the crime scene. What would it mean to you to get that, to have this person caught, especially well, after be, 50 years? Yeah, it, it would be nice. I, I mean... I don't ever think about this person. I personally, I think he's dead. And he, he got his just dues, I think. You know. For me to, like, to remain this hatred of this guy to kill, it's, it's not going to bring him back. You know. Everyone on that team, all of whom have since retired, knew in our hearts that no investigation would ever supersede the Sion investigation. Nicholas. I know that solving the case can in no way erase the grief your family has suffered, but I want to generate new interest in pursuing it again. What would it mean to all of, to all of you to solve it? Because it's, oh, it's one... Be, 
This would be like a career topic or something. Like this. I mean, this would something like this. This is a fraternal brother, yeah, you know, this, brother this, in arms, and uh, the habit go and solve for this amount of time. It's a, it's, it's a long, to be the it's only a long way. It's not solved. It's, you, would, you would like to be the one to, to bring closure to it. That if it ever happened to them, their brother officers and those who follow would never cease their efforts until the case is resolved. Please give my regards to the entire Sion family. Very truly yours, Gerald Ross Jr. Well, before I cash in the trips, it would mean every. <laughs> I hate to say sound cavalier, but uh, I would love to see it. I told Nick Sion that you know, if if we got fortunate, I, I know it's not going to change anything, but it might bring closure for your family. So that would mean everything. And that's another thing. There are not too many major cities our size that can say that we have an unsolved, the only unsolved homicide of a police officer. Most of them have been solved. That, that will always bother me. It will always stick with me. It will always stand out that, that Philadelphia has that distinction of having a, a police officer killed and, and perpetrators weren't caught. So. You gotta find him. You gotta find the shooter. On Saturday, July 27th, Gone Cold is going to be a part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. It's actually our first ever live show, and we're going to be talking about a few things that happened in the Sion investigation while we were putting the finishing touches on this episode. We'd love if you would come out and see us. We'll be at Indie Hall in Philadelphia. It's 399 Market Street, number 360. We'll be live at 2 p.m. on July 27th. But if you want to stick around, there are a lot of great Philly podcasts going that day and all weekend. We're also going to be putting out a few extra episodes over the next couple weeks with some amazing stories that just didn't make it into this one. Like the time Gerald Ross was shot in a church. And Pete Kane. We have so much we want to share about Pete. The guy is an absolute legend. If you have a tip about the murder of Fred Sion, please call the Philadelphia Police Department. The guys in Homicide would love to hear from you. There is still a reward, $40,000, which is both from the city and then other police memorial funds. Through our research, we also found numerous pictures from when this all happened, and we're going to post them on our Facebook group page and Twitter to search Gone Cold Philly. Gone Cold is made by Kristen and me at the KOW News Radio Studios in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Obi Daz. Special thanks to Pete Kane for coming on the podcast. Big thanks to NBC10, too. Thank you to Nick Sion and Gerald Ross for opening their homes to us. Commissioner Richard Ross for making the time to be on the podcast. Follow the show on Twitter at Gone Cold Philly. You can find Kristen at Kristen Johansson. I'm at T-E-E-R-I-C-K. I'm Tom Rickert. I'm Kristen Johansson. Thanks for listening.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.